парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, well, hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russia and East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25, sometimes more, sometimes less. We'll take any amount. And if you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org. Find that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. Click on it and join the table of ranks and become a monthly contributor. So uh, this week's interview, um, which I'm really happy, excited on many levels, first is because it's with Alexei Yurchuk, and I've been wanting to interview Alexei for a really long time, but also because it's the final interview in this series I've been doing all spring for Reese called Acceleration, Openness, and Restructuring, the Soviet 1980s, which was to look at and reevaluate the period of perestroika and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this is the final interview of six interviews. Um, So you out there in the audience, if you haven't listened to the others, I urge you to do so. Um, or go back and re-listen to all of them to see, you know, once you have all six together, maybe you have a different perspective. So why don't we just jump into things and Rusana, go ahead and um, read Alexei's bio. Alexei Yurchak is a professor in the anthropology department at UC Berkeley. He's the author of Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation, and many other articles on the intersections of ideology, language, aesthetics, and culture. He's currently finishing up a book on the materiality and meaning of Vladimir Lenin's body. Here's Alexei Yurchak. So your book, Everything Was Forever and Until It Was No More, was published 16 years ago. Um, the books, the book really continues to has, have resonance. Um, but I want to talk about the fact that, and and I'm, you know, I'm assuming this is intention this was intentional, and people have pointed this out, that the title itself represents a paradox of sorts. Um, and that, that is the idea that the Soviet system was eternal, yet people were prepared for its end when it happened. Um, can you Let's start by having you talk about this paradox at the center of your book. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you for everyone who is here instead of doing something more interesting. So um, basically what I discovered when I was living through the last years of the Soviet Union, and then also when I was doing research for my book later in the graduate school in the United States, was that until around 1985, 86, it was very difficult, even later, 87, 88, it was very difficult to imagine that the Soviet Union will end so dramatically fast and so thoroughly. And uh, with such mass participation of everyone. And... Uh, Basically, I don't think people were necessarily consciously thinking, will it last forever, will it not? It was not something which occurred to people to think about. It was simply imagined as the way life is. It was kind of timeless. I uh, had that hunch during Perestroika because that was the experience, the experience of surprise, of this utter amazement of what's happening. And kind of the idea that it will not last, this, this reform will end. 
was on many people's minds, and I uh, recorded that uh, empirically, right? But also when I went to study uh, materially the period before the reforms, before 85, before Gorbachev became uh, the leader, right, of the party, the idea of this timelessness and eternity was also something I discovered in uh, all sorts of different materials. Uh, again, it was not necessarily articulated explicitly in those terms, but it was definitely background um, imagination, which I discovered. So, and at the same time, the transformation which happened in the late 80s was really fast, and uh, it was introduced from the top. It wasn't a revolution, a grassroots revolution, when some people mobilized and overthrew the hated regime, right? It's, it wasn't like that. A kind of a story which now is, of course, not the dominant one, but which have been repeated now and, and then in different medias. It was a reform introduced from the top, and the reform was not to undo the Soviet Union, it was to make socialism more vibrant, uh, maybe to live up to what was imagined by those who were the reformers as its own promises, its own designs, which were, they thought, uh, distorted later, to make it more human. Socialism with a humane face, right? More democratic. And, but it turned out that precisely this liberalization, democratization, the opening of speech and of the critical topics was the engine which undermined the system. And again, lots of people around me and also lots of people all over the country were involved in this process. At first, they started reading new materials. Gorbachev introduced glassness to the openness, right? Uh, started reading about unknown the white spots of Soviet history, which they didn't hear about before, or maybe heard but didn't know much about. Reading some publications which were outlawed for a while, or published in very small circulations and suddenly were available for wider audiences. Watching something on TV, uh, watching live broadcasts from the Supreme Soviet, from the parliament, which uh, became like a detective story. So all of those changes suggested that in some way, uh, unknown to themselves, people were really ready to participate in this process and be excited by it, be um, engaged in it in different ways, some by just reading and talking to everyone. I remember I worked in the mid-80s when it started. I worked in a lab because uh, I, I was trained in science and engineering. And I, uh, in my lab, which was like eight people work, working on speech synthesis and recognition, because I wanted to marry my engineering physics degree with linguistics. People were working on their projects and constantly talking about the new publications which they just read, exchanging texts. In the next lab, it was the same. Um, when I went to work in other places, it was the same. People met on the streets. There were this tables in the streets where, where new publications, which were like small circulation publications, were... Uh, put out and uh, and the police just walked by. So, it, I mean, it was just this excitement, the discursive excitement, which was the first thing which happened. Let me, let me ask you about your, your own personal experience here, because as you said, you, um, you were, you know, experienced this time personally. You are, for all intents and purposes, a, a member of the last Soviet generation yourself. Um, and and it, the way you describe, you know, I, I'm curious if you can... Talk about how, if you can take yourself back to that time for you personally, because it sounds like a very 
on the one, I mean, exciting, right? But also disorienting feeling because, you know, and I've heard this from others too, this sense of, wow, all these amazing, crazy things are happening, but it's got to end, right? Something's going to happen to just close down on it. So can you, can you talk, reflect on your own kind of personal experience with all of this? Yeah, the um, sense that it will end, that it cannot go like this, that already something unimaginable is happening, something impossible, not even just unimaginable, something impossible is happening and it clearly will end. And there were attempts from the party leadership to curtail some of it, right, in, in the beginning. And later on, Gorbachev himself was trying to stop the kind of process which he, uh, he started. And that experience in itself, I remember that very well. People were saying, сегодня перестройка, завтра перестрелка. Right, today it's перестройка, tomorrow they will shoot everyone who is too loud today. They're just identifying us and everyone will be arrested. So there was this kind of cynical um, disbelief based on the experience of the past. And uh, that in itself tells me that at least at that time, told me that there is a kind of unexpectedness to this, right? There, there was this experience before that that kind of thing cannot happen. So these stasis which will live in will continue. There's a timelessness to it. And um, I think um, what happened to me personally is that um, by the late years of the 80s, by the what I call late perestroika, when there was already this hope uh, on my part with some of my friends, not necessarily everyone, that maybe it will actually be pushed to some kind of major transformation. Because, uh, you know, in 89, there were these first independent elections to the city council in St. Petersburg and also to many other places. Uh, and all the communists were voted out and the independents were voted in. So this kind of transformation was already a big deal. And uh, so I thought... This is a very interesting moment we're living through. It's important to collect materials about it because I was then already thinking I want to become a philosopher or some kind of social scientist. And that was a dream for a while. So I thought maybe it's a great moment to actually think about. Uh, and it also tells us a lot. This transformation of the system tells us a lot about how the system was before it. It kind of is like an interesting laboratory how the big structure uh, disintegrates tells us about how that structure was put together. Well, let's take a, a couple of steps back and, and talk about this notion of hyper-normalized discourse in late Soviet socialism. And in, in your book, you, you, you set up that this, this normalization opened up space for people to shape everyday life. Can you talk about what, what is this hyper-normalization and, and what opportunities do they give people? So first I was talking, I was thinking uh, in my dissertation, in my, uh, when I was researching and writing, I discovered that something which is fairly intuitive, but I could also discover it empirically, that the political uh, discourse and political ritual as well meetings and elections and all sorts of different exams and participation in institutions, but also texts and uh, speeches and uh, announcements and slogans. All of them um, in the 70s and early 80s became, you can call them normalized. There was a certain uh, norm around which that practice and that discourse were organized. So they were you went to a meeting, it was very similar to the previous meetings, 
you read a leading article in the Pravda and the kind of phraseology was very recognizable. But then, so that's a normalization of that discourse. Uh, and it happened, uh, it happens with all sorts of political and uh, church, religious discourses, uh, business discourses. In some way, the normalization of this particular kind of what Bakhtin called authoritative discourses is not surprising. But what was surprising about the Soviet one is that in the 60s and 70s, especially in the 70s, it became increasingly more cumbersome, a kind of a, there was a certain snowballing effect. You could trace it through the two decades. It became more and more uh, longer phraseology, uh, much uh, more elaborate clauses built into the speeches with the same kind of uh, quotes and same kind of normative discourse, but but very cumbersome. There was a certain snowballing effect. It was becoming more that way. It was a certain inflation you may say. And similar things happened with practices as well, with the rituals. And that's what I call hypernormalization, because what I think, uh, and this is the um, hypothesis which I then uh, was analyzing, and I think I'm, I, I, I stand by it, is that uh, what happened after the, de- after the death of Stalin and after the denunciation of the position of the leader who can you know, the cult position, someone who can play a unique role of the interpreter of Leninism for everyone. After that position was destroyed, there wasn't really a singular person who could reoccupy it because the position itself was gone. And as a result, discourse didn't really have this external editor who could uh, fix it. Who You know, Stalin was constantly fixing speeches and films and uh, publications and was notorious for that and giving... Uh, lectures and uh, publishing in newspapers, different discourses on linguistics and biology and so forth, and physics. So the political language, in the absence of this external canon, started imitating itself. The, the only way for a speech to be correct was to quote the previous one. And under these conditions, when there was no canon to compare you, uh, yourself with, and no critical discourse about language, about political language, it became hypernormalized. It started, fix, started quoting more and more and more of the same. So this inflation, this snowballing effect, this hypernormalization, right? Because hypernormalization for me is not simply the same thing as normalization, which is a static, fixed idea that something is organized around a norm. Hypernormalization is a process. So it's, when something is hypernormalized, as it, as it happened to the Soviet language and ritual, it became progressively more cumbersome. So, so where does where does where does things like because to me it sounds like the hypernormalization moment is when the discourse, because of its constant elongated cumbersomeness, becomes a parody uh, of itself in some respects. Um, and and one of the things that you do deal with of this is is. The, the concept of job, right, and and irony and satire, um, how how are these two then related to the 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 hypernormalization of Soviet uh, ideological discourse? Yeah, well, they're clearly related, but they hypernormalize discourse. Like when you are an activist in the party cell or in the Komsomol uh, organization in the you know in the factory, you you give a lot of this talks in that language, you write reports, and uh, and people who are your rank and file, which is the majority members of that institutional organization, they also participate in it, 
either passively by voting and so forth, or sometimes they have to give a police format, say political election. So, so when that language is produced on the on the level of the institution, in the collective farm, factory, and university or school, hospital, it is not necessarily a parody in the sense that it doesn't have to think of itself as an, as a parodic imitation, because parody suggests at least most of the time, I don't think it necessarily has to suggest that, but most of the time it suggests a certain knowing kind of tongue-in-cheek, ironic or cynical attempt to imitate. And I, I, I think sometimes that played into the reproduction of that language. And people were, of course, making a lot of comments about it, right? But when it comes to stop, that's a little bit more engaged irony. It's when one uh, would take that language and instead of if you let's stay on the level of language, right? Because I know some people were saying I only analyze language, which is not the case. I talk about ritual, I talk about practices and material culture as well. The rest of the book is all about that. But let's stay on the level of language just for the sake of the argument to, to clarify. So when you have to reproduce that uh, complex language, you have to quote a lot of things which you don't necessarily pay m- much attention to at the level of substantive meaning, right? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you have to fill your speeches with that kind of phraseology. In the Soviet context, to be uh, directly oppositional to it in public because uh, of this, what we call totalitarian control, means there's no independent of the state platforms or public media or groups where you can critically engage with that language and kind of step out of it and say, well, maybe this is a problematic language. Maybe we're not building communism anymore. Maybe Lenin was wrong because he was writing in the 20s. Now, why do we need to quote him in this way? You cannot really do that because, I mean, you can. You're not necessarily going to be arrested for it, but it will not be part of the speech. It will be really curtailed right away, cut out. So the kind of oppositional discourse in this totalitarian institution doesn't exist. Um, It's... uh, it can exist, but it's very ineffective. It cannot become public. It cannot circulate because of this, uh, the way control is organized of language, this conditions of its production, right? So uh, the other strategy is to engage in reproducing that language at face value, but maybe do it a little bit over the top, like create the phraseology which is uh, too long and too... Uh, difficult to decipher and repeat in your own words, right? Um, and that strategy can become sometimes a very slight kind of comment for the those in the know, or it can be in the case of some artists, like informal artists like Prigov at that time, it can become actually a, st- a strategy of artistic engagement. You don't necessarily critique anything. So it's very difficult to say that this is an oppositional discourse. And yet everyone understands, oh, many people understand that it cannot possibly be uh, a serious uh, support of that discourse because you are engaged in it with a kind of over-the-top earnestness. Make it into this over-the-top complexity that it cannot possibly be serious. Or people may wonder, are you serious? You're not serious? And you don't tell them. So that's uh, an interesting phenomenon which I think emerges in the situation of, of this, on the one hand, totalitarian control over public discourse. On the other hand, the situation when the discourse becomes hypernormalized in the sense that you don't necessarily have to pay much attention to the literal meanings of this phraseology, or at least to all of its meanings. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And most of the time you don't. You have to reproduce this formally. 
if you reproduce it formally, then you're fine and you become, uh, you, you continue being a student, you continue being a worker, everything is fine. You're a Soviet citizen with all its opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not simply ideological space. This feeds into a, another uh, theme that, that runs through your book, and all other scholars are, are, are noting this too. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, the way many looked at Soviet experience was a, through a series of binaries, right? There's a public-private space, there's official, unofficial, truth, lies, etc. Um, but your work and, and others' work are really looking at or questioning whether we can actually break these binaries like that, that we need to break these binaries, that it's just the, the, the split between, say, public and private isn't so discernible. Um, why is this important for understanding life in this period in light of what, what you've told us so far as well? Well, let's start with the, one of the basic binaries, truth and lie, well, lie and truth. Metaphorically, lie above truth under, underneath. Basically, the implication, and there were a lot of articles written about this, right? Including Vaslav Havel's famous essay, The Power of the Powerless. The idea is that the state is basically telling lies, and uh, people know that, and they pretend, maybe, or don't pretend that they buy it. But then in, in private, when the state doesn't look, they uh, actually articulate the truth about the reality. I think the problem with that kind of... Uh, there are many different problems in, in terms of uh, what the subject is and philosophical problems with languages, but I will not touch upon those now. Let's just talk about the very practical problems. This kind of approach instantly posits that there was nothing of value in socialism. Basically, we are talking here simply about a repressive regime, just like any other repressive regime. It's this comparative studies of repressive regimes. So in this repressive regime, of course, this regime was telling lies because it was repressive. It was its only uh, raison d'etre, its only goal was to repress the population to stay in power. And I think this is a very problematic premise because if you study social in socialism empirically, then you see that a lot of the values of socialism were in fact very much part of the everyday life and part of, pe of people's own identities. To, to say that that was a lie and people lived kind of externally to it and then there was this species of autonomous truth away from that lie, I think is very problematic because, you know, for example, the idea of uh, common good, the idea of care for the future, the kind of... Um, very uh, contemptuous relationship to material to those who uh, only lived for for material uh, gain, for financial, uh, for money. There were a lot of was a lot of disrespect for this kind of person. There was this idea of a socialist value, right? And it was in, inhabited by people, embodied by them, even if they didn't think that they are supporters of the party. They might have been very cynical about the nomenclatura, but it doesn't make them into these liberal subjects who are suspicious of the socialist values. They were still socialist people. So the binary truth lie of state people doesn't allow for that kind of complexity. I think that's the problem. Uh, when you come to the binary public private, it, it, it follows 
Would you like me to talk about that? Huh? Yes, yeah, because this is a, the 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 binary between public and private is probably the most pre prevalent one in how we understand uh, Soviet society. So yes, please please address it. Yeah, so uh, I already said that in in different publics uh, public events, right, uh, and the public events where you are a member of, a, for example, a big audience and you are addressed as a public and you recognize the address, that's a public context. And you behave in that public context in ways which are not necessarily predictable to the person who is running that public event. For example, the meeting, right? You may vote in favor of all sorts of different decisions which the meeting is proposing, but you also have other values which might run against that decision. So your voting is not necessarily because you support it. Your voting is because you also have another public life outside of that meeting. And that public life is just as public, it's not private, where you are engaged in things which, you know, organizing different kind of cultural events or pursuing different kind of hobbies or uh, doing di different kind of traveling which actually might, in some of its substance, run against the decisions for which you voted. They are also public. So it's not like there is a certain pretense in, pro in public and then in private when the state doesn't watch you're doing something else. The state may well watch what you're doing in the literary clubs and you're reading literature there, which is frowned upon by the state. But it's not necessarily going to be outlawed there because somehow the conditions of that club allow that. And and you are able to. Uh... No, I, I wanted to ask because it, it, in terms of like, how do we ascribe in this this negotiation and and kind of going about one's life, right? You vote here because you have other things that you want to maintain by, and the the ritual of voting is important for you to maintain these other things in your life that have value for you. Do you, do you ascribe a certain level of instrumentalism and consciousness there, or is this just the the, ha the habitat of Soviet life? No, that's no uh, instrumentalism. You you are doing things which are expected, not because you necessarily rationally articulated for yourself. Okay, I will do it because then they will leave me alone. You, it, it's a background uh, realization. It's it's like we act in any society. A lot of the things are not necessarily. Uh, in the front of your consciousness, you don't necessarily think. Of, and in fact, it's problematic to think about them because when you start thinking about them, it's then that you start blaming someone on being a conformist, right? I, th I think it's a very problematic blame that people are conformists, which we hear from, from liberals today. I think it's very problematic and we can talk about that. But nevertheless, you don't think in those terms. You participate in something which is the expected social engagement, right? Which... If you don't go, see, you have to think about the negative. If you stop going to the Komsomol meetings, if you stop participating in any Komsomol activity, yeah, I mean, you were admitted to Komsomol at age 14, and then you just stop. You run the risk, maybe you, no one will arrest you, but you run the risk of being expelled from the university if you're a university student, or losing your job, or not promoted in your institute or collective farm, or whatever you do, right? So... It's just very problematic to be positioning yourself against. But when you do it in favor, it doesn't necessarily come across to yourself and to, to people around as being an active act of, of support for some kind of oppressive regime. What you're doing is you're reproducing the fabric of society. You're just part of it. And that fabric, of course, in, involves not only that vote, it also involves you being a student and, and pursuing what you like or being a doctor who really cares for the patients 
and wants to be a good doctor. So that that one of the conditions of being a good doctor and and caring for the patients and being all your life really a good a good professional, right, with an ethical worldview, is to go to those meetings and vote. It's one of the conditions. And so you do that without necessarily thinking they are repressing me here. Hey, dear listener, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Alexa Yerchuk. I want to take a moment to remind you that I have a documentary coming out in a couple of weeks, Teddy Goes to the USSR. It's a six-part story about an American tourist who went to the Soviet Union in 1968 and looks at various issues he encountered throughout his travels in the Soviet Union. You might have heard the first trailer already, but I have this new trailer that I wanted to play for you and encourage you to follow Teddy Goes to USSR on your favorite podcast app. So here's trailer number two. I'm Sean Gillery, the host of the SRB Podcast, a podcast about all things Russian. Back in 2020, I was contacted by a Ukrainian historian, Edward Andrushenko. Edward had discovered a 50-year-old KGB file on an American tourist named Teddy Rowe. When I tracked Teddy down, I expected wild tales of Cold War espionage. What I got instead was a story of a curious young Montanan and insights into the relationship between the Soviet and American people. Teddy Goes to the USSR is a six-part podcast series about that relationship, one that is shaped by mutual propaganda on racism. You know, if there's a lynching episode in the United States, they are all out there on Radio Moscow. Here they are telling you that they're the leaders of democracy. And yet, look at this horrific violence. Consumerism. A lot of the language to discuss Soviet shops is really caustic kind of uses very, very strong adjectives, pathetic and ridiculous. Unlikely friendships. One of the greatest strokes of luck on my Soviet trip was meeting Lev. I will never know whether he appeared in a seat beside me by accident or whether he was placed there, but he was always the consummate gentleman. And of course, the KGB. When I left my suitcase, I placed that thread or a couple of them in strategic spots And when it was disturbed, invariably, every time I came back, I knew that I was being watched. So subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to podcasts. You have this ethics, right? And it, it includes a variety of moral, ideological, but also behaviors and practices of, of Soviet life. There's a hegemony of Soviet life in the sense of it's just there as part of one's life. Then you have perestroika. Does and and my question is, is you know, when we think of perestroika, of course we think of it as reforms, reforms from above, as you've said yourself. Um, it's it's a, in a way an a periodization of how we understand the history of the Soviet Union and modern, say, Russian society. What about, what does perestroika then stand for you? Because it seems that one of the things that happens with these reforms is those ethics become destabilized. Yeah, um, that's a very good question, actually. Perestroika 
I think, I don't know, I haven't heard uh, yet your uh, podcast with Vlad Zubok. But uh, Perestroika, when it began, it really began as Glasnost, right? 85, especially 86, 87, 88, 89 as Glasnost. So the reforms which were introduced were the reforms of uh, speech. You could actually step out of that hyper-normalized political discourse within the political sphere itself, and you could look at it from an external position, right, and uh, critique it and think, are we building the right kind of socialism? Are we, do we really know what Lenin meant by this? He was distorted by, by all these interpreters later on. Let's go back to the real Lenin. That was the original idea of Perestroika. Gorbachev actually time and again said, we need to return to Lenin because we completely forgot what he was saying. And so this is our problems, right? They stem from the fact that we don't know Lenin. So this idea that you can now think about this hyper-normalized discourse as, as a problem and you can uh, uh, critique it in a different language. And look, still socialist language, still the language of uh, which is supposedly in support of the communist project, but not the language from inside the hyper-normalized political sphere. And that was a huge transformation because that opened up the floodgate which I think ultimately undermined the Soviet Union. I'm not saying this is a better good thing. I'm not saying this is a universal tragedy like some people do, as you know, but I'm just saying that that's the, the floodgate. If you think about the uh, Chinese reforms, for example, they never allowed for, for glassness. They, they started with the, with economics, but it's a different system. So, um, so Perestroika for me then is originally this discursive moment where, which breaks the hegemony, as you said, hegemony of representation within the political and allows for the kind of critical engagement and deliberations which critique the political discourse still from the positions of, of, of communist project, but critique it. And therefore, more and more with time from 86 to 89, undermining this whole, this whole rhetoric and uh, occupying a very different place. As a result of that, this whole idea of reproducing the form, right, going to the meetings and voting without necessarily wanting to support something, but not caring too much, just voting, that became irrelevant because suddenly the relevant position was to engage with the literal meaning and to be critical about literal meaning. So this performative shift, and we didn't touch upon that term, but it's a term from the book, where uh, reproduction of the formal structure of language, of ritual, of practice was often primary and paying attention to the literal meaning was not as important because you can invest your life with other meanings, right? That became irrelevant because suddenly it was exactly the literal meaning which was the, the center of deliberation. You know, this, this, of course, brings me to the other thing too, is, you know, there, what we call the end of the Soviet system, the end of the Soviet Union, um, is, I, it, I, and I'm thinking more and more of this as a controversial issue too, 30 years on. You know, we have end, we have collapse, we can say dismantlement. But it, I, last week I asked Vladislav Zubok this, you know, why do you, Alexei, prefer the term collapse and why do we not conceptualize it as a revolution? The revolution we already touched upon, right? Um, it is not a revolution in the sense of some popular mobilization, which happens around some popular leader or a popular idea or popular public 
language which overthrows them, right? The, the oppressive power system, the royalty, the party, and so forth. It's not a revolution uh, because it started from the above. It was a reform which was designed to make the existing system even better than it is, to improve it, to get rid of all the stagnant problems which it, one felt it had, to, to make it live up to its old promises, right, to the designs of the uh, founding figure. And uh, why collapse? So th this is why not a revolution. It was really a, a different process from some revolutions which we know, right? We can argue about the fact that there are different types of revolution, and that's a question about language then. But I think, substantively, that's my answer. But in terms of the collapse, why the term collapse? Because some people say, maybe we shouldn't talk about collapse, but about continuity. Like, look, Matvienko was the um, secretary of the Communist Party Regional Committee in, in Leningrad, and now she's the third person in the country. Or Putin was in KGB, I mean, and so forth, right? The reproduction of the, what we now call by this problematic term, elites, uh, reproduction of those in power in a different system again, many of them are in power. So there's a continuity. I think the problem with that argument, of course, it depends on what you focus on, and you can make this argument. I mean, it's totally legitimate to talk about continuity of that sort. But if you think about the system as a whole, then one thing which really is completely irreducibly part of the Soviet system is that it's a communist project. It's building a very concrete communist future. It is run by a communist party. It's written in the constitution, in the article six, that the communist party is the leading force of the society. And there is a concrete goal. And the society is organized in such a way, however much you believe or disbelieve it from inside, that it's building this future, right? in terms of the school curricula, in terms of the meetings and different designs of the uh, research institutes, what they do. I mean, on every level, I'm not going to waste your time. So that is completely broken in 91. In the fall of 91, the Communist Party is outlawed. By that time, everything already happened, but formally it's outlawed. The Communist Project is thrown out as a problematic, as an undemocratic, as a too dogmatic one, right? Lenin is critiqued. So it's broken irreversibly. That's why it collapsed. And after that, the system cannot sustain itself. It cannot say, okay, now we are the Soviet Union, which is not building communism, but we are building liberalism now, still with the Communist Party, which will rename itself liberal. But that doesn't work that way. It, all of that institutional structure is gone. What, what about the idea of collapse, though, as an event, right? Collapse gives the sense of, you know, literally something just falling, boom. And... Some people have talked, some scholars have, and, and, and observers have talked about collapsing as a process. E even to up to the present day, there is a discourse of some see, you know, even the reverberations of perestroika, the collapse, the formal collapse of the system and its reverberations all the way to the front. What about, what do you think of the idea of collapse as a process rather than as an event? Well, I think the binary, <laughs> talking about binaries again, the problems with binaries, the binary of process and event is a problematic binary. Okay, perestroika, why? Because perestroika, the, the collapse as a process was one defining feature of the Soviet collapse was, was really fast. And it was actually 
with each new gain, with each new article, with each new transformation, it became more and more clear that something completely unprecedented is taking place. That was really pressed into the very short period and a very ongoing kind of experience. So actually my, I don't know, you said that I prefer the word collapse. I actually prefer the word implosion. And I, and I write about this in the book and in some other articles as well. Implosion exactly to, to give a sense that there is a certain processual thing to it. And not only processual, but that there is a certain, uh, a certain kind of domino effect that some things lead to other things and to other things. And they all together, it's still an event. It's uh, an event doesn't mean it's like this. It doesn't mean that you, it's like an explosion of a bomb. It can be actually, you know, f- first you have this fuse and then you have an explosion. So, so it, I don't know, it's between the, pro- it's, it's a processual event. But you know what I will tell you? One metaphor, which I sometimes tell students, and, and as all metaphors, it's slightly simplified, of course, but it, it, I think to me at least, it explains what I want to try to explain and how I see it myself. You know, I may be wrong. Gorbachev is standing in front of this house, in front of this building, you know, with different structures, different floors, different uh, balconies and towers, and this is the Soviet Union. And he says, there are all these problems, we need to reconstruct it, right? Make it even better. But what he doesn't know is that it, it mutated inside in such a way that people rebuilt their apartments inside and they rebuilt, they, they uh, maybe knocked down some of the supportive walls inside. They uh, built new staircases and, and cut new windows. It's very difficult for him to see how it works inside because th- there is no public discourse about it until Perestroika. So he says, we'll start reform by reconstructing this. And he takes a breakout, we'll be, re- rebuild it. A little bit he know that by taking this particular brick out, he will undermine the whole supporting structure inside and the whole thing starts crumbling, crumbling, crumbling and then falls down. So this is the metaphor which I see. So it's both a process but an event because it was a certain introduction of a certain thing. Maybe not one thing, a few things which began a process which had a certain irreversibility built into it, right? Therefore, the moment is also important, even though it's a process. That's why it collapse. Um, let's turn to Lenin, because you know I know you've been working on Lenin for a while. As one should. Yes, as one should. Yes. Well, you know, even Gorbachev was trying to go back to Lenin, right? We need to, you know, go back to the old guy and figure out what was going on. So, you know, you're you're writing about his importance, his corporal body, the 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 lingering of his body. Um, and him as a as a representation as a as a um, embodiment of truth. What drew you to to engage Lenin on these various levels? Okay, so I think I should start with the book which we just discussed, and uh, I should probably uh, add a little bit of a personal story here, if you don't mind. So the I came to the United States on a student visa to graduate school, and I came in 1990, which was still. Uh, Two years before the, well, one and a half years before the collapse. Collapse. So I came uh, here from Soviet Union, from this city called Leningrad. And in my second year, in the winter of my second year in graduate school, that country imploded and became, uh, my country became Russia and my city became St. Petersburg and so forth. So um, that experience, perestroika, in my experience, thinking about all of that in graduate school, I went to graduate school to think about history. 
uh, was actually very interesting because uh, in a way I wanted to understand for myself how to think about the whole of Soviet experience. But I ended up writing about the late years because Perestroika was so powerful and I thought about it as a such an interesting lens through which one can think about the, what preceded it. Right? When the, the structure, the metaphor, when the structure collapses, you can then uh, look at the way it collapses to figure out how it was built uh, before that, what was specific about its construction inside, right? Um, and so I, I was always thinking, like, I, I need to maybe address the early period as well, and I, sh I sh should think about the complete whole Soviet history. I know it sounds very pompous. I don't want to be pompous. I just want to say that for me, it was important, okay? Lots of people write about it, but I wanted to write it in a particular way. So what I discovered uh, when I was writing my book is something pretty clear anyway, but uh, I uh, discovered more detail about it, that Lenin occupied the position of truth, right? That all of this political language in every period always referred to Lenin, that Stalin never replaced Lenin. I mean, there's some books written about how Stalin became a new Lenin. Well, yes, but Stalin became a cult figure because he presented himself as the best interpreter of Leninism. And Stalin was thrown off the pedestal when he was critiqued for distorting Leninism. So, And the party reinvented itself again in Leninist terms. So Lenin occupied a very particular position, which no one else did. After death, Lenin. The embodiment of truth. And when that uh, truth was critiqued during perestroika, that's when the whole thing actually could not rebuild itself anymore. It had to implode. So then I thought that I need to actually think about this, the construction of this figure Lenin. And of course, there is also this material body. And that material body is actually very important. This, I mean, it, Lenin didn't have to be embalmed, but once he was embalmed, that body stood for something which was associated with, with this embodied truth. How to think about it? I think uh, here my anthropological training and anthropological um, you know, approach to questioning uh, the field was important because this is a material body that I thought you need to know how it is preserved, what's done to it, what can be done to it, what cannot be done to it, what criteria is used by scientists, right? In order to understand how it is imagined by the political system, not by any one particular actor, but, but by this sovereign world, how it is imagined, what it stands for materially. And then from there, you can also argue how the truth is imagined, because they are connected. This materiality actually stands for it. And I mean, there's also lots and lots of stuff written about that body, but most of that stuff is written without people having access to the materials about the materiality of this body. It's fairly secretive, right? And it's not widely known. Maybe in the earlier years, they wrote more about it, but still not exhaustively at all. So for me, it was important to actually go and find out about this materiality and try to link it to this, for lack of a better word, political theoretical understanding of uh, what they construct as Leninism. You wanted to ask something? Yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, how do you, because I'm, I'm assuming people will ask when they learn that you're doing this, you know, regular people will just ask you, like, why is he still there? Why is his body still on Red Square? And despite even Putin's denunciations of Lenin, I don't know of any, you know, realistic move to have him removed. 
So how do you explain the, 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 the persistence of his body on display? Well, first of all, there are different uh, voices. Some say that he, he used to be taken out. In fact, there are voices which say, until we take him out, nothing democratic will happen in this country. Uh, I, I don't buy this argument, but that, that argument exists and it, it has the right to exist. So first of all, let me pose you a very simple question back. France is a republic, and yet there are monuments to French kings. How come? The public is, I mean, on some level, the idea of a monumentalized history, which is, which stands for something quite contrary to what we stand for today, is not such a surprising thing anywhere, right? Of course, you can say that something particular about Soviet Union, about Lenin, and that particularity is usually articulated from the position of an external liberal observer who says, oh, this is a dictator, and how can you have a dictator? Well, what is it really a dictator? It is a, a figure which stands for the truth of the communist project. It was a real historical project in, in which a lot of people were invested. You know, sometimes actively, sometimes simply by being Soviet people, as we spoke about before. So to say that you will create some kind of public ritual of taking the body out suggests that you have to say, well, there was something so profoundly wrong about our history, unlike other histories, that we will take it out with, with this kind of pompous, because it cannot be done as a matter of fact, it has to be a big public event. So I think it may well be done, right, by some other, other government, or even maybe by this one. I suspect not by this one, but maybe by some future government. But it's not an obvious thing at all. It, it, I would personally think that one solution to this is to create a real democratic museum of the Soviet past, which was part of our past, which had a lot of good and bad promises and ideas and ideals into which people invested their lives. And, and that body, it's very paradoxical. It has gulag, it has great achievements, it had the, the promise of the just society as well, which was very much part of that design. And many people believed in it, right? And, 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 and became good doctors, we spoke about it, with that idea in mind. So to have that body as part of that museum would be interesting because it really intersect all of those paradoxical things within that body. But so it's not obvious to me why it has to be taken out um, any, any more than you would say, well, why the queen is still the queen in Britain? I mean, the, the queen in some, they, they say, okay, this is a different kind of figure now. She's not a sovereign. But nevertheless, symbolically, if you talk about Lenin's body symbolically, symbolically, the queen stands for a huge colonial violent uh, domination over millions of people and, and, and murder. And triangle slave trade was done in the name of the queen, right? And yet they have queen and they say, well, we reinterpreted that history. We critically engage with that past. So that figure remains our tradition and allows us to engage critically with our past. Well, you can say a similar thing about Lenin's body. Interesting, huh? Very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, here's a question from, from the audience from Michelle Rivkin-Fish. Hi, Michelle. Nice to, nice to see you here. 
<laughs> she says, um, building on the idea that we can look at the collapse to understand the dynamics of the previous era, you know, you've said this, the 80s reflects on the system before it. Uh, she's wondering how you think about or rethink the internal structures and processes of Russia over the last 20 to 30 years in light of the current war. Yeah. Well, this is a thank you, first of all, Michelle, for being there. Thank you for asking me a very relevant question for today. So, um, I don't, there are many different ways in which I can approach it, I guess. Uh, well, one could approach it. Uh, let's start by thinking. Uh, I will just uh, start by uh, thinking about what I'm thinking all the time today, of course. Um, are we living in a, in a situation which is comparable to the late Soviet one? That there is a certain control over media, control over uh, positional public discourse, or over uh, there is indeed control. There is no way to organize publicly anymore, right? Even just recently, there was a Navalny network and many other networks. So uh, that seems to be comparable, right? And uh, so are people now uh, supporting the regime in the same way they were supporting the Soviet Union through this through this hypernormalization? I don't think it is actually comparable because on the level of quasi-totalitarian control today, it seems comparable. But the Putin regime is not really building anything. There's no project in which we are all engaged, all the Russian citizens, of building a better society which is designed according to these texts and what it, and that's what it will represent right and they will all have this future oriented momentum with this uh, goal in mind there isn't a project like that and it's also not offered to the world right so from that point of view i think to compare i don't know whether michelle has this comparison in mind but that's what i uh We'll be talking about uh, to compare it with the late Soviet period. I think is problematic. There are certain things which obviously were shaped by the past, but I think it's also very different today. Right? There's a certain dictatorial kind of system which is very different from the Soviet one. It has some family resemblances with it, but it's actually quite distinct. And um, if you think about support, for example, people often I don't know again whether that's what uh, Michelle had in mind, but one common discussion these days uh, in, in the media, including independent media, you know, all these YouTube channels, which mushroomed up in the last month, whether the support which different polls indicate, this kind of overwhelming support for the military, for this war, on, or the, as they call it, military operation, is real, whether people really support it. And of course, you can say that, um, sorry, almost sneezed. You, you can say, of course, like in the Soviet times, that, well, people uh, say that they support, but is it really that they are actively engaged? You know, every time they are asked a question on the phone, usually those those polling, polling are down on the phone or on the street, pedestrians are approached, often with a camera and with a microphone. This is why we see them. I mean, they are mentioning that they're interacting with the fairly repressive state. This is, even if it's an independent polling company, how do you know exactly where this information will end up in your face and your phone number, right? When they call you, they ask your name. 
So you say what basically is expected. You say that you support. And it's not even that you're necessarily just afraid and that's why you're saying it. It's also because if you say no, and some people do say no, if you say no, you actually are putting yourself in a very engaged position with the state. You are saying, I take this uh, position which you are uh, broadcasting and I actively disagree with it. If you say yes, however, it's not necessarily an, an active position. It's just the position of leave me alone. I'll say that to just like I will vote at the meeting. And I will continue living in my world, creating my own world, which is not necessarily controlled by you and not necessarily controlled by your horrible policy, where I don't need to present myself as a collaborator, as an opponent, or as some kind of person who is ethically guilty for your decisions. I will try to barricade my world from your decisions. And I should also say that the majority, and that also goes to support what I just said, most of the people who are asked in those polls, and that's a well-known fact now, it's, it's commented on by all the pollsters, actually re refuse, they hang up, or they run by the question, overwhelming majority, which is also a very important, we don't hear that, those numbers who didn't answer at all. But that's actually part of the whole event. You have to consider those. And I think without considering that, you cannot understand the positive answers. So my, just very quickly going back to Michelle, uh, Michelle's question, which where I was leading it, okay, if you allow me another minute, um, I think, I hope I'm right. You can never know the future. But I think once the reforms are introduced at the top, once the system starts changing itself, again, I think it will happen as the reforms from the top, most likely. Um, it will turn out that a lot of this support was quite ephemeral, that people will be actually ready to distance themselves from the position which they inhabited before, just like it happened in Perestroika, and be very readily and very fast engaged in the new. And suddenly uh, it will be a very similar process to what happened in Perestroika. You know, I want to ask about this this issue of, of public support. Um, you know, on the one hand, I, I see why the Putin government is asking these questions, right? There's a there's both a legitimizing but also disciplining effect of these polls. Now, but in the last several weeks, I've seen tons of speculation outside of Russia about does, does the Russian public support, do they not support, what is the resistance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, similarly, though, also in the late Soviet period, this was a question that was constantly asked during the Cold War. Do, you know, Soviet people support the Soviet government? No, they don't support the Soviet government. Why, why this question from outside the system, especially in a, in a case like today's Russia or even the Soviet Union, where public support isn't necessarily going to change, support or not support isn't necessarily going to change the logics of the leadership? Why are, we, why are we interested? Why are we interested in whether Russians support the war or not? Well, if you think first about the Soviet period, why this question about whether the Soviet people support or not support, I think part of it comes from this binary imagination that there is a system which is repressive, and then there are the people. And the people either support it or not, or they resist. And that's why so much emphasis was done on studying dissidents, which is a fairly, which is completely fair topic and a completely important one. But, but the kind of disbalanced 
focus on that suggests that the imagination was that there is a dictatorship. There is the state and, and the, the repressed population. And I think that comes from the lack of imagination from this kind of liberal position of how socialism works. It's not simply dictatorship. I mean, it has a lot of dictatorial features, but it's all, it, it's a socialist system where this division into state and people is actually much more problematized than this uh, this analysts imagine, right? Uh, we were talking about it earlier, so I'm not going to revisit this argument uh, earlier today in our conversation. If you think about today as well, this is what I uh, just was trying to uh, say, um, answering probably uh, wrongly the question which I thought Michelle posed. If I didn't answer her real question, I'm sorry, but that's what I imagined she was asking me. So uh, if you think today about the support, uh, as I said, um, if you measure support by questioning people, by looking at who is putting their bodies into the Z shape today, right? You know what I'm talking about. Then it's very strange because uh, you don't really see massive, mass, uh, spontaneous uh, meetings where people come out with slogans, bomb Ukraine, kill the Nazis. You don't, you see this institutionalized Z letters in kindergartens and uh, hospitals, hospices even, in, in uh, institutes and universities, where you know that if you don't do that, you will probably uh, not pass your exams at the university or maybe be expelled altogether. So you kind of do that thinking like whatever, right? So I don't think uh, that the support today is indicative of some kind of conscious thinking about it. Even when people are, I, I, I watched this yesterday on the palace square in St. Petersburg, they talk to people and some of them stop and say, yes, I think the president is right. And, blah, 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 and they like give a narrative and support. So it's not just saying, yes, I support. So you would think, well, this person clearly thought it through and clearly supports it. But again, as I was saying, that kind of articulation for yourself, not only for the camera, but also for yourself, suggests that you want to be a normal citizen who is then left alone. This is a way of being left alone by the state. Fine, we are with you, we are supporting, but let us live our life where you don't really have a control over it or at least less control than you could, right? So we're not going to be active opponents, but our support actually, I think, once the reforms begin, will disintegrate very rapidly. It will be exactly the same kind of support where, well, you know, people went to the demonstrations on May 1st in, in, Saint, in um, Soviet Union. Millions and millions of people with those slogans, party and people united and shouted hoorays, and was support. But I, as I'm trying to analyze in the book, it was support for, again, for being Soviet citizens who are relatively independent from this control all the time. They're creating their own lives, right? And, and uh, when perestroika started happening by 88, those demonstrations, 89, those demonstrations had no one. It all, it was, uh, when the conditions change, it turns out that that support means something else. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm also a bit, uh, to, to push you a bit more on this is I'm, I'm, curious as to why we care. <laughs> why do Europeans and Americans, journalists a lot of times, why are why do they care whether there's popular support or not for the war at this point? Um, you know, part of me thinks, if I could answer my own question, part of me thinks it's 
uh, out of a a, de- a desire that the people will rise up and end this regime, etc. Um, it's a it's a way to also tr- maybe try to differentiate between state and people, or even conflate state and people, particularly. You know, as we've seen the last several weeks, this, you know, canceling Russia and our banning Russians in a variety of different places around the world. Um, I, I'm, so I'm curious to, to, to what your opinion is, is why are we outside of Russia asking whether Russians support or not? Well, on some level, this is a very important question, right? I, we all want to know to what extent people think about it, how they, whether they feel ethically challenged by this. Or... But, you know, the, um, this obsession with this question under these particular terms, right, whether how many, let's measure it, suggests that there is a probably a lack of imagination, lack of understanding of a certain thing, that in order for people to rise to, it's like, a, you know, the problem, I think, in my reading, a problem with Basil Pavel's famous essay, The Power of the Powerless. He's arguing that if all greengrocers, I don't know if you remember the essay, the greengrocer puts in the window of his shop this sign, Workers of the World Unite, without paying attention to it. And Hubble says, but this is a lie. He lives and he should refuse to do that. And if all greengrocers refused, then the system will not be able to reproduce itself. Well, the problem with this argument, there are many, many problems, I think. I even wrote about it. But one big problem, which is... uh, pertinent to the question you're asking me now about Russians. In order to have that kind of a position, you need to be able to imagine that you are organized with others into this big public, right? You need to be uh, to have a public language which is shared. You need to have a, a ability to walk out on the street and be supported by many others. Some people still do it and they are arrested right away. You know that in in Russia now, that kind of public mobilization is impossible. It is instantly squashed. The regime is always introducing measures preemptively as soon as it imagines that there will be some kind of platform for this organization. You know that with all the foreign agents. You know that with all the outlawed media. You know it with extremely draconian laws and with the way the, the bodies are controlled on the streets. So when you don't have that kind of way of imagining that you are part of the public and that your act will be an organized one. Of course, you you cannot imagine if I don't put it in the window and everyone else doesn't put it in the window and let's all do it, You can, it, it doesn't work like that because you, you don't know what they will do. You have no way of knowing. And so because you don't have this organization, it's very difficult for you to uh, protest, right? And so the way of reacting then is to try to distance yourself from any decision altogether, right? Including the kind of moral uh, guilt, which many people feel, and they want to distance themselves from it. So I think, but the obsession with why people don't walk out and uh, like Ukrainians did on Maidan, Ukrainians lived in a very democratic situation at that time compared to Russia. They could organize. There was a lot of independent media. There were fairly democratic elections. They could go there and the police didn't have a way of, of um, you know, arresting everyone right away because that was uh, illegal. So they tolerated them for a long time in Maidan. Remember the student, but that's just not at all the Russian situation. There's nothing comparable to that. 
So this is why. But but why we? So the I think a lot of the commentators who who ask why Russians don't do it imagine that somehow people can organize without having this public platform. But that's impossible. It never happens that way. In every regime, you need that. I it, you know in a way you know a lot of the 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 war has made me reflect back on my days protesting the lead up to the Iraq War. And a couple of things you just said really resonates with me. First off, I remember at the time, one of the things that protesting gave me is the feeling that I wasn't insane. That since I was surrounded by so many other people of like mind, that there was a certain comfort in that act of protesting psychologically. Second um, is the dynamics of protest and in a way they worked, say, in American society as opposed to the way they work in Russian society. What, what amazes me about the way protests worked then um, in, in the lead up to the Iraq war was the protesting was the, the, the Bush government, and I remember precisely what he said. He said something to the effect of the fact that people can protest shows how democratic we are as opposed to Saddam Hussein. And protest was reincorporated into the hegemony of the of the state, which was is always really struck me as fascinating. Whereas the Russian government, because of you know history, culture, political culture, protest is seen as in direct opposition, and cannot be you know incorporated into the state structure in in, an, in a way to diffuse its its potency. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts or reactions to to that spiel of mine. Yeah, well, I I, I do, and I, I already thought about how to answer, but then your last comment made me want to address that first. I don't think it's a, a, anything to do with any political culture. Some kind of political culture in Russia prevents the protest from being seen as something legitimate. I don't think th- there is such a thing as political culture. It's always constructed and shaped. If you look at Perestroika, there was so much protest and was part of quote unquote political culture. I mean, I, this is probably a very anthropological comment, but you know, that, there's nothing which kind of dooms Russia into that kind of reaction to protest. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I didn't mean to imply that. That I want to make that clear. So let's, <laughs> let's both make clear that we didn't imply. A, a, any kind of cultural explanation here, but in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the protest as a democratic form, as you were saying, I remember very well two thousand and three, the run up to the Iraq War. I was in um, in England at that time in Cambridge, and I went to London with my friends, and there was this one million people march through London against the war, and then Tony Blair began it anyway. But of course, the protest was very important. Yeah, you were part of this. Yeah, so you, I agree with you. Uh, the, the government still can do something else. But it was very important that there was this democratic expression. And the police was uh, not, of course, arresting anyone. It was just controlling that there's no fights or whatever, or drunken people. So in terms of the, it, what is a protest in Russia? If that kind of protest is impossible, this, what you call democratic protest, well, let's think about what happened since the beginning of the war, at least, right? Let's even break it out what was happening before. Hundreds of thousands of Russian left, Russians left the country. Well, that has to be thought of as a very particular reaction, which is a form of protest. People don't want to be, it's not only that they are afraid for their lives. Many people are not going to be arrested and they just don't want to be part of it. 
They don't even want to be part of, of a country. It's a refusal. There are many different nuances to it. Some people lost their jobs. Some people had to relocate to, to be able to work for online for international companies as they did, like IT sector and so forth. But ultimately, there's also a political element to it, right? It's a refusal. And if you look, for example, on, on uh, social media, people actually are writing, like on Facebook, it's uh, kind of outlawed, but through VPN, people have access to it. And many Russians outside of the country have access to it. There's a lot of the, the discussion there, maybe not very open sometimes because people can be arrested, but nevertheless quite critical, right? So there is certain enclaves of that public uh, rhetoric which are totally in existence. So, you know, under the conditions when you are not allowed to uh, share and mobilize, right? Nevertheless, there are certain enclaves which show to you that there is a lot of the protest, right? And that protest doesn't shape itself into the forms which you're familiar with, such, such as a march in DC or in London. So I would not say that there is a certain, again, sorry for quoting the political culture uh, metaphor, it's a certain political culture which disallows for protest to be considered as a legitimate form or, or makes it somehow, I don't think so. The the distinctiveness of Putin's regime is that it's very savvily introduces preemptively measures which disallow for any kind of social organization over and over and over. And it spreads them over and over and over. And, uh, you know, now basically Putin is a monarch now with the change of the constitution, right? It's totally a, a, a system with a kind of dictatorial monarch whose role is in his own eyes to reproduce the system. He, he cannot give up, give up power. So that's the only reason that for now, not to give up power. And I think the war in Ukraine is part of it as well, to, to dominate that whole big area of the world and to keep the, the West at bay, as it mentions, right? Because that represents for him personally and for his system a big threat. Um, and finally, uh, going back to uh, perestroika, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, when you you know think back to when you were either writing, you're doing the research, writing the book, um, and of course your own personal experience, and you you know think about those things in, in our present day moment, what what kind of what does it teach you, or what can it teach us uh, about our present day? What lessons can we take from it? This is a very nice way to, to, to end. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think to some extent I will refer to what we spoke about earlier. We mentioned that idea a few times. I think what it teaches us is that systems can disintegrate quite rapidly if certain conditions for their existence transform. Even from, if certain reforms are introduced from, from the top, what I believe will happen in Russia, and of course this is, you know, can prove that. But that's a hunch which I have, knowing a lot about R Russia and observing it and writing about it in the last 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think the support for, for this Putinism, for lack of a better word, will end up being something which will be quickly deconstructed in, in, in people. In people who are today maybe actively saying, oh, well, we support the government, we support the president. I don't imagine these demonstrations 
where people, like, you know, remember Nina Andreeva during uh, Perestroika, there was this lady who, I cannot give up the principles, meaning principles of Leninism, of communism, right? Because she, she was seeing that the socialism is, is being dismantled. I just cannot imagine big crowds of people walking out like we cannot give up the principles of Putinism when Putin is gone. Like Putin is deposed, there is transformation at the top, and there are people like, we want Putin, we want Putinism. It won't happen. So I think the support for the system, once it starts changing, will end up being gone quite quickly. I think what it teaches us is that a system which is imagined inside it by, by people who live in it and by people who observe it from the outside as really strong as being supported by huge numbers of people as being, you know, this monolith can actually implode and the support will evaporate very rapidly. So uh, in order to understand that, you have to actually under, uh, go beyond those binaries. And the question is, do you support Putin? Do you not support Putin? This is one of the binaries. It's a very, and we believe in those numbers, 70% as opposed to 20 That's a binary. And that's completely imagining this liberal subjects who have some kind of little mechanism inside their head. They either support or not support, and you measure it. And it's completely not paying attention to any of the conditions under which this is done. So that's the problem with binaries. It, it, it doesn't consider the context at all. And the context is very complex. So I think that's what it teaches us. And I think I actually believe it very uh, vehemently, that's the word, right? Uh, strongly that uh, the disintegration will be very fast. Once, of course, the conditions allow for it. That was Alexey Yurchak. Alexey Yurchak is a professor in the anthropology department at UC Berkeley. He's the author of Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation, and many other articles on the intersections of ideology, language, aesthetics, and culture. He's currently finishing up a book on the materiality and meaning of Vladimir Lenin's body. Okay, thank you very much, Rusana. Um... So this is interest. This is going to be a somewhat interesting discussion because I don't know how many of you out there know, but Rusana is Alexei's student, so we expect her to hold nothing back. <laughs> um, you expect me to be the expert. Yeah, well, on the topic. that is that is absolutely true. I do expect you to be the expert on the topic. But in lieu of that, um, I know you're interested to hear what what Margaret and I think of of the interview. Uh, so Margaret, why don't, why don't you start? So I guess I can start where the interview started, which is when Yurchak went into uh, the title of his book and he said, the present is timeless, which to me felt like a really powerful statement. Maybe why it felt so powerful is it is because it speaks to a critique I have of social sciences or, or at least the way that we've come to understand history how we base our historical understanding on what we can see, what we know about the present, and how hard it is to forget about the present when considering the past. So the past is like so often bastardized through our own futuristic lenses. So to actually perceive the past as it was, you either have to A, live through it, and even that gets dissonant, discombobulated, or B, do everything you can to see and feel and represent the moment as it was, uh, discounting your own knowledge of the future. You have to force yourself to forget the future. 
uh, because, of course, those are the conditions under which people were making the decisions at the time. Can I intervene here, Margaret? Because you're, I'm not really clear what you're saying because you're speaking really abstractly. Well, I just feel like this trope, there's this trope that like, maybe it comes from, uh, maybe it's a Cold War trope, but there's this feeling uh, that Alexei talked about in the interview that that uh, people were living this two-sided life, you know, that that you project yourself one way to the public and one way privately to yourself. And I guess my point is that it's silly that we've given ourselves binaries as a tool to understand it, to call it normal, because it's not normal, and those binaries are wrong. And Yurchak says he kind of, he's very clear in saying people did not, to say people lived apart from socialist ideals is a lie. Because people lived within the parameters of socialism, they were surviving, and this was normal life. And we must understand it as such in order to actually understand it. A couple of things about the interview in, in Yurchuk's book. Um, the first is, is that, that go to this binary issue. Uh, it is, it's, it's false in the sense of we're not so, and a lot of scholarship does this. There is a presupposition of some kind of hyper-conscious individual that we imagine or construct um, that existed at certain points of time. And this is actually really strong, I think, in Soviet studies, that you have this ultra-conscious person that can step outside of the context in which they live the everyday and and construct something like a very neat and binary public-private, just to give an example. And when I think about this in my own life, I don't have that level of consciousness to construct those things. Sure, there are certain things that I keep private, as we all do, but a lot of that has to do with other issues like shame or taboo or whatever, whatever, or the, the relationship. Like I may keep certain things private from you, but I won't keep it private from, say, a another friend who I have a closer relationship with. So that's that. It, the 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 everyday experience, and I think this is why Alexei's work is really interesting and why it continues to resonate. I mean, this book was published 16 years ago, um, and I and I actually forgot to ask him what he thinks about its continued resonance uh, as as a, a text, as as a work on the late Soviet period, um, and I think it's because why it's endured as a, as a work of scholarship has to do with the fact that he is questioning or getting us to question all of these rigid binaries that we've constructed to understand Soviet life. Um, Maybe legacies of the Cold War. A lot of it is, yeah, a lot of it is very political and ideological, right? A lot of it is this, and a lot of it is based on the fact that, you know, in the beginning of trying to understand Soviet society, a lot of the information people in the West were basing their understandings on were dissidents, were people who took a step outside and then constructed their outsideness as something completely separate from Soviet life. And, and scholars like Alexei have shown that, no, not only are they not outside, that Soviet life actually allows for them to engage in certain practices that they perceive as outside of Soviet life. And a number of scholars have pointed to this, right? If you think back to our inter interview we did about hippies, 
you know, one of the most profound conclusions is that the Soviet context actually created the conditions in which these hippies could develop, you know, their, you know, political or, or cult counterculture. Um, so I think Alexei's work provides a lot of um, means to think about people's positionality within what I would call the waters of socialism. Yeah, I find this intervention extremely powerful, the dismantling of this opposition, because it really speaks against this idea that there were that that Soviet citizens were either naive or they were all like living in false consciousness because how could they not notice what was going on around them? You know what I mean? And um yeah, like like you just mentioned, Sean, I think Alexei's approach shows us that these two things were mutually constitutive, that that, that the system allowed people to perform certain things that they wanted to perform, but also people kind of contributed and perpetuated and developed the system. So it was like, it was not in opposition, rather it was co-constitutive. Um, you know, what I found interesting in the interview was the conversation about the body of Lenin and why it's still in the, uh, on the red square, you know, because I definitely had those conversations before with just, you know, random people who, I don't know, traveled to Russia or I don't know, learned something about Russian history. And I really appreciated Alexei's response where he talked about the fact that it's not that unique. If we think about various kinds of monuments, like Confederate monuments still out there, or the Queen is still in England, even though she's not really, you know, she doesn't have any real political power. So I guess when it comes down to the question of Lenin's body, it's really just the oddity of having... Um, like a material body just laying there. But other than that, as as a symbol of the past, as a symbol of like some kind of history, there's nothing really like extraordinary about it, you know? And I also thought, I also appreciated his comment about like the removal as admittance of, of, of a mistake, Right. If if we remove his body right now and like bury him like some other socialist countries did, we kind of admit that this project was a mistake. It was a failure. It's a dead end of history. Right. Um, I don't know. I just found it interesting. Well, to um, with. Lenin's body, I thought it was interesting that he was saying, Yurchak was saying um, that we could put it in a Soviet history museum or something and kind of questioning like why that hasn't happened yet. And if there's one thing that I've learned from this series, <laughs> from the 1980s series, it's that co the collapse continues to be negotiated. And as long as it's weaponized or used by the state in the way that it is, the, the Soviet history, I mean, the memory, the memory of it needs to be actual. 
And you need to feel it as a real precursor to yourself and your own life on this highly individual level. And so I feel like I wonder if turning over a new leaf by moving him into a museum, creating this exhibit out of it, creates too far of a distance between the person and what's in front of them to use Soviet history in the way that the state wants to. Maybe that's over the top, but... Well, I always felt that if they ever do decide to to bury the old man, they should send his body on a world tour because because Lenin is a world historical figure. I mean, look how many look how many like things in the 20th century were inspired by Lenin, particularly in in the third world. Like, you know, everybody needs to say goodbye to the old man <laughs> or spit on him or whatever you want to do uh, you know, as a as a world historical figure. But but to be serious, um, I, I in, in thinking about, I want to actually comment, and, and maybe we can we can leave it with a short discussion of this, um, with the whole like what I'm taking away from the entire series, right? The fact that this is the last of six interviews, um, and and I came up with kind of five things that I noticed that I think are still lingering questions. Um, one is is that the first is, is we don't have a grand narrative for the collapse. Like you just said, Margaret, it's still being negotiated. We're still, it's still contested. And in many respects, it's being framed and reframed on present day issues, right? Um, and, and just, you know, to, to just given the events of today, i.e. the war in Ukraine, you're seeing some inkling in the press, for example, or even amongst this, other scholars that maybe we should rethink or reevaluate the collapse of the Soviet Union as something that's continuing to collapse. It's still collapsing or still being negotiated. I mean, we've talked about this in other contexts. The second thing is that our understanding of that period of perestroika and the, the collapse of the system more generally, it's still from above, right? It's still about Gorbachev, it's about Yeltsin and other minor you know, elite players in this process. Um, we still don't have a lot, though this is changing, thankfully. Uh, we, we still don't have an understanding, uh, at least to my satisfaction, of what that experience was from below, right? What did perestroika, how did people experience that, that time? And then how did they contribute to it, right, as, as actors, as agents in this massive historical process, so again, we, we're looking, still looking at things from above, less from below, but that's slowly changing. Also, in, in relationship to that, our narrative of the collapse of the Soviet Union is very central, right? It's Moscow, Leningrad, as we saw with the interview with uh, um, Isaac Scarborough about Tajikistan, you know, what is happening on the periphery is related but different. And I think we need more, you know, looking at how perestroika was... Uh, experienced, implemented, whatever, negotiated outside of the major cities of the Soviet Union, um, particularly in the rural space. You know, I'd love to know what was, what was, you know, perestroika on a collective farm, for example. <laughs> Maybe there wasn't at all. Um, another one is, is that the question of inevitability of was this collapse of the Soviet Union inevitable or not, is still a driving question. I think a lot of the scholarship, it, I would go, go so far as to say most of the scholarship that I'm familiar with is trying to deal with that question still. Um, that seems to be a continued driving thing. 
And then the other issue that I that I see that is still unresolved is, and this is something I came back to both in the interview with Zubok, but also in, in elect with Alexei, is that you know what do we call this thing? Do we call it collapse? Was it a revolution? Was it a failed attempt at reform? Where can we point to continuity? Where can we point to breaks? Um, you know, was the Soviet the collapse of the Soviet system a threshold? Uh, that separated, you know, a previous period from a new period, or is there continuities that many people are pointing out and are kind of suggesting with this whole idea of, say, I don't know, Putin wants to reestablish the Soviet Union, whatever that means. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that I observed throughout all of these interviews about the 80s that I think are kind of driving the conversation. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like this podcast and you want to help us out, you know, please take a moment to share it on your social media platforms, tell your friends, your family to listen. You can always welcome to drop us a line on Facebook on Twitter or at srbpodcast.org. Uh, I've gotten a couple of messages that I'll get around eventually to answering. And as always, we love your support here at the SRB Podcast. Uh, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free to listeners and freed from those pesky advertisements that seem to be, I don't know about the rest of your podcast listening, but a lot of the podcasts I listen to now are just like littered with ads. They're very annoying. So please help us keep the SRB Podcast free of advertisements. So Go to srbpodcast.org and become a member of the SRB Table of Ranks. So until next time, bye. the story.